Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen as we go through the book of Revelation. My name is Dr. Josh Herwick, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. And over the next few months, we will be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at the church at thequeen.church. That's our website. And on our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. We can't wait to hear from you. And feel free to drop a like or a share of this podcast if you find it helpful. Now we're going to dive right in. Last week we, we looked at the trumpet judgments, the beginning of the trumpet judgments, uh, as um, the book of Revelation, the, uh, 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 the visions themselves of the end of the world began in the throne room of God, and there in God's hand was a sealed scroll. It had seven seals on it. Jesus came in, took the scroll, uh, opened each one of the seals, and as he did, a new uh, event happened. Uh, the first few uh, introduced a new judgment. And then when he opened the seventh seal, a group of seven angels came forward, each holding a trumpet. And uh, the trumpets were a new series of judgments. And as those angels began to blow their trumpets, uh, judgment befell the world. Uh, and at the end of Revelation chapter 8, after the fourth trumpet was blown, an eagle flew over the world and declared three woes. He said, whoa, 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 uh, because the three trumpets that were yet to be blown uh, would introduce judgment that was worse than any of the judgments that had yet come on the earth. And so here in Revelation chapter 9, where we're starting today, the fifth angel blows his trumpet and a new set of difficulties begin. So Revelation chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. Now, this star that we see here is the star that's fallen. It's another angel. Um, as we see there in verse 2, the star is given the masculine pronoun, he. Now, the star, it says, he fell to earth. But he fell not in the sense of a fallen angel. It's more in line of thinking that he descended from one level to another. You know, when Revelation speaks of angels falling from heaven in a similar fashion to what we commonly think of a fallen angel, Satan, um, in the book of Revelation, uh, angels that are bad and have been removed from heaven, it's more in the sense of them being cast out, not merely falling, a passive action. Rather, it, it's an active action on behalf of God. And that's not the case here. This is not an active action. This angel is not thrown out of heaven. He simply descends from heaven to where this bottomless pit is situated. This angel is an agent of God, ushering in more judgment in the same sense as the angel writers of the first four seal judgments. Now, the bottomless pit was a cultural re relevance. It had cultural relevance to first century Romans and Judeans. The bottomless pit idea was supposed to be a place of containment of evil angels, demons, and beings who were anti-God. It was not a place of punishment necessarily, but it was simply a holding cell. And similar to the seal judgment writers, even those contained within the pit are subject to God's power. 
And then the opening of the pit released smoke enough to darken the sun and the very air. Even though a third of the light had already been removed uh, in a previous judgment, the smoke here uh, that comes from the pit darkens all daytime visibility. All of it. Everything that remains, the two-thirds of light that are still there, are completely darkened now at this point. Now, it's also important to note that John is not saying that the smoke came from the great fire of a furnace, but that the smoke was so thick and dark, it reminded him of furnace smoke. He uses the word like there. It was like the smoke from a great furnace. He's not saying that there is a a massive fire uh, under this pit uh, here, um, because it's a bottomless pit. There's nothing at the bottom. He uses that word like to indicate that's what he was reminded of in seeing the smoke was of a, uh, a furnace smoke. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, Locusts were very common, and they left devastation in their wake. Locusts also you know, normally consume plants, but here they're specifically instructed not to touch plants. They're only to attack unbelievers. Unbelie- you see, those who do not have the seal on their heads. Now, this is also an indication of what leads me personally to believe that the 144,000 who were sealed in a, a previous passage is a reference to all believers and not just individual Israel itself, Um, because the way it speaks about these people who have been sealed throughout uh, from that point onward in the book of Revelation leads us to believe that they are uh, believers in general and not just a specific pocket of believers. And so those who do not have the seal uh, are, are going to be attacked by these locusts. Now, what exactly these locusts are, we have no idea. They could simply be demons in that they came from the pit, but really all that we can glean from the passage itself is that there are a lot of them, and they inflict terrible pain. And notice also that uh, their power comes not from themselves. They've been given power, and only God has the authority to grant them their power. And that word power is also unique. It's not the common word for power that's in many other passages in the New Testament. Uh, In the Greek, this word for power here is more uh, an authoritative power, authority. Uh, And that means that, you know, the power they have is limited by the one who grants them the authority. And we see believers uh, appear here to have the seal of God on their foreheads. The seal would not be visible to the general public, but would be something that is spiritual. So this judgment does not affect Christians directly at all. Verse 5, the locusts, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, locusts actually uh, generally only live for about five months. Physical locusts only live for about five months which could be why locusts were used as an illustration here in this judgment. In addition, there's, there's multiple commentators. Now, I wouldn't have brought this up except I found it in a 
several different commentators who have varying uh, opinions about a lot of things, but they agreed on this. Uh, they believe that the number five was often used as a general number, meaning simply a few or several, the way we use those phrases, a few or several, that uh, many people in the first century used the number five uh, in the same way. And they, these, these commentators referenced a whole bunch of scriptures. The five sparrows in Luke chapter 12, the five in a house in Luke chapter, the end of Luke chapter 12, five yoke of oxen in Luke chapter 14, five talents in Matthew 25, two groups of five in Matthew chapter 25, five days in Acts chapter 20 and in Acts chapter 24, five husbands in John chapter 4, five brothers in Luke chapter 16, five loaves in Matthew chapter 14, and five beatings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That could be the case. Uh, but five months could also be used to represent simply incompleteness, that the judgment itself is not yet final. And though the pain of the unbelievers causes them to long for death, they will not find it. They will try to kill themselves, but they will be unsuccessful. Look at verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now notice before we get into some of this, that in each of those uh, the descriptions there, of what Paul is is seeing, he uses the word like again. Not to say this is their literal, this is what they physically look like. He's saying this, it's, it's kind of like this. It's like that. It's like this. Um, uh, and so he uses that word strategically and in every single one of those descriptions. And we see also that many of these descriptions of locusts are, are similar to the descriptions of locusts throughout the book of Joel prophesying a coming swarm of locusts. And some suggest that these locusts are strictly spiritual beings, demons, sent out from the bottomless pit to torment unbelievers, and that their description is uh, an explanation of their nature or characteristics more than their actual physical appearance. For instance, lion's teeth, meaning ferociousness, not necessarily size of the teeth, uh, an iron breastplate, meaning that they are well protected. Either way, these beings have been sent by and given power by God to torment but not kill the unbelievers in the world. Now, what we can see in that is, is grace, um, that these people are, are being given great, are, are being given mercy, and still in the midst of this torment and this difficulty, they are be, having, they are being given an opportunity still to believe. But we will see in a minute, they will yet choose not to believe. And so these locusts aren't, a, a, you know, running around doing as each individual one would please, similar to how swarms of locusts operate now. Rather, look at verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is called Apollyon. 
The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So the locusts of judgment are not a leaderless horde like real locusts. They have a leader under whose direction they are guided. And that leader appears to be the one who was given the key to the bottomless pit. In the proper name form, both Abaddon and Apollyon mean destroyer. So this angel, that's his name, destroyer. Now this angel does not seem to be a demon himself. Because we see, actually, in Revelation chapter 20, the first three verses, that this angel is an agent of God. In Revelation chapter 20, John wrote, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. That's the indication of the same angel we just read about here in Revelation chapter 9. In verse 2 of Revelation 20, John writes, He seized the dragon and that ancient servant who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So the angel, the king of the locusts, the leader of the locusts is an agent of God, is an angel, a good angel, not a bad one. And we see that when the locusts come, they are just the first of the three woes that were mentioned in Revelation 8, verse 19, uh, 13. There's still two to come, and this next one is a lot harsher than the previous. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 9. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now, whose voice could this be? The voice is coming from, you know, parts of this altar that is sitting before God. The voice, as we're going to see in the next verse, commands the angel who's there. And so that seems to imply that the voice has more authority than the angel. The voice also comes from the top of the altar. That leads us to think that the voice itself is divine. However, the issue is not whose voice it is, but what is actually said by the voice. Because digging too much into areas of figurative language that is purposely vague leads to misinterpretation and functionally missing the entire point of the passage. Verse 14. The voice said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now these angels, we've seen angels being held back previously in Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. But these don't seem to be the same angels. Because those angels in Revelation 7 uh, are at the four corners of the world. These angels, rather, are located specifically at the river Euphrates. Now, there are some who think that the binding of the angels means that they are bad angels or demons. However, they're still released to do God's bidding, and it would seem that they were even created by God specifically for this moment in time to kill a third of all mankind for his purposes. So perhaps the fact that they were bound means that they were not allowed to fulfill their purpose of killing a third of the people until the appointed time. So it's not that they were tied up because they were so evil, but they were simply uh, uh, prevented from uh, the moment of fulfilling their purpose until their moment arrived. 
And so these angels kill one-third of the people. In addition to the one-fourth of the people who were killed by the fourth seal judgment writer from Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And so this is a massive reduction in people. I mean, if you just take the population of the world today, let's say it's 8 billion people. Uh, the, in Revelation chapter 6, of a quarter of the people were killed. So that's, if it were 8 billion people, that's 2 billion people dropping the number of, of world population to 6. And now here, a third of the people are killed. And from 6, that's 2 more billion. So that drops the number down to 4. And so just in the matter of, of honestly, a few chapters, a few verses, the, the world's population has been reduced by half. This is a mass devastation on a scale that has never been heard of, even to the point of when Cain killed one-fourth of the world's population when he murdered Abel. The number, verse 16, the number of mounted troops. So the angels themselves, we're about to see, the angels themselves did not physically go out and kill. The angels, what those four angels at the river Euphrates, what they do is they go and they gather an army to go out and do this massacre. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Three things, fire, smoke, and sulfur. That's important in a minute. But first, look back up at how many there were. He says twice 10,000 times 10,000. Remember, 10,000 is the highest possible number they had at the time. So John's mention of twice 10,000 times 10,000 seems to mean something along the lines of, you know, infinity times infinity kind of a deal here. It's way more than was possible to count. And John, is, he gives this description of the armies, and it would seem that it's, it's, it's figurative for the ferocity of the armies, because he reminds the reader again here that he saw this in his vision. But notice his exact wording. This is how I saw the horses in my vision. It's as though he's trying to convey to the reader, this is just how I saw it. This isn't, you know, physically how it's going to come. He says, this is just how I, I saw what I saw. Uh, their attack would be unmatched. Uh, the, the horses coming with lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. These animals are pretty severe war horses. Uh, notice, though, that the, offense, the offensive weapons uh, of the army are in the horses and not the riders. Uh, I find that very interesting. Though we're not really given any indication of what they could possibly mean, but the riders don't have swords, the riders don't have spears, the riders don't have weapons themselves. The weapons are the horses and those three things coming out of their mouths, fire and smoke and sulfur. And we see why in the next verse, verse 18. By these three plagues, so the fire, smoke, and sulfur are, as John calls them, plagues. A third of mankind was killed by the fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now, there are some who see the tools of modern warfare and the imagery of the horses, but that's not necessarily present in the text. That would be interpreting Scripture through the lens of my experience instead of interpreting Scripture through the lens of Scripture. Or even interpreting my experience through the lens of Scripture. 
Now, again, some see the description of horses with serpentine resemblances, like snakes, as an allusion to demonic forces. The head on the tail indicates that the destruction will come from behind as well as in front of uh, the army. The smoke or the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that come out of the mouths of the horses are the tools that are used to kill uh, the people. And so they kill with their mouths and they wound with their tails. Notice there at the end of verse 19, it says they wound with their tails. Their tails don't do the killing. Only what comes out of their mouth does the killing. Um, and so this is a, a you know, terrible situation with these, uh, this army, these war horses. Here, look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, this is interesting. The army, or specifically the fire, smoke, and sulfur from the mouths of the army's horses, it's referred to as, as plagues. So it would seem, again, to indicate the figurative nature of the vision of the twice 10,000 times 10,000 man army. And the people, the, the unbelievers, are still wrapped up in their sin, refusing to repent and turn to God. Even though they see what's going on, they see the, the Christians not being impacted by the devastation, and yet the vast majority of the unbelievers will still refuse to acknowledge the saving power of Jesus. Look at Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now another mighty angel, saying another one. This is a reference back to chapter 5, verse 2, where a mighty angel asked who was worthy to open the scroll that was in God's hand. And so this angel comes with the presence and authority of God. He has the rainbow imagery from around God's throne, the face shining like Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and pillars of fire like the presence of God before the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And he's got in his hand a little scroll. Now, the size of the scroll, there are some who think, because they think that this angel is massive, and so the scroll just looks small by comparison. But as we'll see in a minute, that the size of the scroll uh, open, that's important, uh, could be a reference to the length of its message being brief. And so this angel has one foot on the water, one foot on the land, and that means the angel's message is for the entire world. The angel also appears to be just as adept on the sea as on the land. And so this angel, <clears throat> verse 3, calls out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And so the angel yells, as do voices of thunder. However, John is instructed not to record what the thunder says. And that begs the question, 
Why do we think John was instructed not to write down what they said for us to know? I mean, he's been told several times to make sure he records everything he's saying, but here he said, but not that. Don't write down what they say. Now, this seems to point to the understanding that no matter how much we strive to know about the end times, some things will remain hidden until that day comes. No matter how much we want to know, we must trust in God's knowledge and guidance in the end, as also we do today. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there may be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So the seventh trumpet will signify the coming of the end, the end of the delay. And that could be a reference to the delay that was mentioned to the martyrs back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, that when they asked when justice would come, when the end would come, and they were told, uh, not yet. They were told the end would come, but not yet. And he speaks here of the mystery of God. That mystery is, is a specific phrase. It's specifically used uh, to mean the gospel of Jesus. Uh, just as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, calls it the mystery uh, of the gospel of Christ. So the end coming will bring the complete gospel fulfillment. Verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, it's interesting, I find, that John is told to take the scroll, but he then goes and asks the angel to give it to him. And the angel that angel that he speaks to there tells him again to take the scroll. So he's told to take it, but instead of taking it, he goes and tells the angel to give it to him. So he's told to make an active decision, to, make an, to, to, to act, and instead he goes and, and makes a passive request. Um, we do this oftentimes today uh, in many things when God tells us to do some things. And so he goes to the angel, says, give it to me. And that angel says, no, you take it and you eat it. He doesn't give it to him. He still requires that John take it. Now, the scroll represents the message that God has for John to deliver. The preaching of the gospel is a good, joyful thing for the believer, but the woes and judgment of the unbeliever should be bitterness. Now, notice that the bitterness is in John's stomach not the stomach of the unbelievers who are experiencing the difficulty. And so John will deliver the message in joy because the gospel is grace, the gospel is mercy, the gospel is joyous. But the refusal of some to accept it is bitterness to the one delivering the gospel because they know what is to come for those who refuse. Now the believer 
today in reading this should be driven to urgency to communicate the power of the message to everyone so that they also can experience the sweet joy that it contains. Verse 10, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John acted on the very words of instruction. So he takes the scroll. He didn't passively receive it. He had to reach out and take it. And the message of God is meant to be actively taken. And then we see with John here a sort of recommissioning, emphasizing that John's prophecy is for everyone. I would draw your attention that most scholars believe John here is in his early 90s, 91, 92, 93, when he's given this revelation from God. And in addition, most believe that this is the first of his writings, that he received this revelation, he wrote it, and then he wrote the Gospel of John afterwards, and then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John even after that. And so it's as though John in his 90s on the island of Patmos, ready to die, Jesus comes to him and says, not yet. I still have something for you to do. And he gives them this, this new, this new uh, purpose in life. And that's, that's something we should take with us. And, and, and receive that same charge for ourselves today, that as long as we are still here on this earth, God still has a purpose for us. God still has something for us to do. That even though we may retire from a career, we can never retire from the work of Christ. It is always before us. He always has something for us yet to do. And when he, he no longer has something for me to do with my own specific giftedness, he will then take me. And I will be done. But until that time comes, I still have to, something to do for him here and now. Just as you still have something to do for him here and now. Fulfill your purpose in the same way John is being reminded of his purpose here. Now, as we look today at Revelation chapter 9 and Revelation chapter 10, we will continue on in the next uh, installment of this podcast as we take a look at the end of the world. I hope you'll join us in that one. And if you haven't had a chance to go back and uh, catch some of the previous uh, episodes of this, you can. It's on, they're on our website, thequeen.church. You can also find it through the podcast links on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts and on Google Podcasts and on Spotify. But you can find it in all those places. Uh, so grab it, subscribe, like, and share. But thank you for joining us today as we examine uh, God's revelation of what is yet to come.